Chapter 8, 1845 to 1847, at the age of 27 to 30, Part 3 of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume 1, 1837 to 1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8, Part 3. What are the men of New England about? I have traveled some in New England, especially in Concord, and I found that no enterprise was on foot which it would not disgrace a man to take part in. They seemed to be employed everywhere in shops and offices and fields. They seemed, like the Brahmins of the East, to be doing penance in a thousand curious, unheard-of ways, their endurance surpassing anything I have ever seen or heard of. Simeon stylites, Brahmins looking in the face of the sun, standing on one leg, dwelling at the roots of trees, nothing to it. Any of the twelve labors of Hercules to be matched. The Nemean lion, Lernian Hydra, Enoan Stag, Irmanthian Boar, Augean Stables, Stymphalian Birds, Cretan Bull, Diomedes Mares, Amazonian Girdle, Monster Gerion, Hesperian Apples, Three-Headed Serbius, nothing at all in comparison being only twelve and having an end. For I could never see that these men ever slew or captured any of their monsters, or finished any of their labors. They have no friend Iolas to burn with a hot iron, the root of the hydra's head, for as soon as one head is crushed, two spring up. Men labor under a mistake. They are laying up treasures which moth and rust will corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. Northern slavery, or the slavery which includes the southern, eastern, western, and all others. It is hard to have a southern overseer. It is worse to have a northern one but worst of all when you are yourself the slave-driver. Look at the lonely teamster on the highway, wending to market by day or night. Is he a son of the morning, with somewhat of divinity in him, fearless because immortal, going to receive his birthright, greeting the sun as his fellow, bounding with youthful gigantic strength over his mother earth. See how he cowers and sneaks, how vaguely, indefinitely, all the day he fears, not being immortal, not divine, the slave and prisoner of his own opinion of himself, fame which he has earned by his own deeds. Public opinion is a weak tyrant compared with private opinion. What I think of myself, that determines my fate. I see young men, my equals, who have inherited from their spiritual father a soul, broad, fertile, 
uncultivated, from their earthly father a farm, with cattle and barns and farming tools, the implements of the picklock and the counterfeiter. Better if they had been born in the open pasture and suckled by a wolf, or perhaps cradled in a manger, that they might have seen with clear eye what was the field they were called to labor in. The young man has got to live a man's life, then, in this world, pushing all these things before him, and get on as well as he can. How many a poor immortal soul I have met, well-nigh crushed and smothered, creeping slowly down the road of life, pushing before it a barn seventy-five by forty feet and one hundred acres of land, tillage, pasture, woodlot. This dull, opaque garment of the flesh is load enough for the strongest spirit, but with such an earthly garment superadded the spiritual life is soon ploughed into the soil for compost. It's a fool's life, as they will all find when they get to the end of it. The man that goes on accumulating property when the bare necessities of life are cared for is a fool and knows better. There is a stronger desire to be respectable to one's neighbors than to one's self. However, such distinctions as poet, philosopher, literary man, etc., do not much assist our final estimate. We do not lay much stress on them. A man's a man for a that. Any writer who interests us much is all and more than these. It is not simple dictionary it. Talent at making books solid, workmanlike, graceful, which may be read. Some idyllic chapter or chapters are needed. In the French Revolution are Mirabeau, King of Men, Danton, Titan of the Revolution, Camille Desmoulins, Poetic Editor, Roland, Heroic Woman, Dumouriez, First Efficient General. On the other side, Marat, Friend of the People, Robespierre, Tinville, Infernal Judge, Saint Just, etc., etc. Nutting and Le Gros by the wall side. The Stratton house and barn, where the orchard covered all the slope of Brister's Hill, now killed out by the pines. Brister Freeman, a handy negro, slave once of Squire Cummings, and Fenda, his hospitable, pleasant wife, large, round, black, who told fortunes blacker than all the children of night, such a dusky orb as had never risen on Concord before. Zilpha's little house, where she was spinning linen, making the Walden woods ring with her shrill singing, a loud, shrill, remarkable voice, when once she was away to town, set on fire by English soldiers on parole in the last war, and cat and dog and hens all burned up. 
spoiling her witch's dinner and heard muttering to herself over the gurgling pot by silent traveller ye are all bones bones and cato the guinea negro his house and little patch among the walnuts who let the trees grow up till he should be old and richardson got them where breed's house stood traditions as a tavern once stood the well the same and all a swamp between the woods and town and road made on logs bread i made pretty well for a while while i remembered the rules for i studied this out methodically going clear back to the primitive days and first invention of the unleavened kind and coming gradually down through that lucky accidental souring of the dough which taught men the leavening process and all the various fermentations thereafter till you get to good sweet wholesome bread the staff of life i went on very well mixing rye and flour and indian and potato with success till one morning i had forgotten the rules and thereafter scalded the yeast killed it out and so after the lapse of a month was glad after all to learn that such palatable staff of life could be made out of the dead and scalt creature and risings that lay flat i have hardly met with the housewife who has gone so far with this mystery for all the farmers wives pause at yeast given this and they can make bread it is the axiom of the argument what it is where it came from in what era bestowed on man is wrapped in mystery it is preserved religiously like the vestal fire and its virtue is not yet run out some precious bottleful first brought over in the mayflower did the business for america and its influence is still rising swelling spreading like atlantic billows over the land the soul of bread the spiritus occupying its cellular tissue the way to compare men is to compare their respective ideals the actual man is too complex to deal with carlyle is an earnest honest heroic worker as literary man and sympathizing brother of his race idealize a man and your notion takes distinctness at once. Carlyle's talent is perhaps quite equal to his genius. Striving to live in reality, not a general critic, philosopher, or poet. Wordsworth, with very feeble talent, has not so great and admirable as unquestionable and persevering genius heroism heroism is his word his thing he would realize a brave and adequate human life and die hopefully at last emerson again is a critic poet philosopher with talent not so conspicuous not so adequate to his task 
but his field is still higher, his task more arduous. Lives a far more intense life, seeks to realize a divine life. His affections and intellect equally developed, has advanced farther, and a new heaven opens to him. Love and friendship, religion, poetry, the holy, are familiar to him. The life of an artist, more variegated, more observing, finer perception, not so robust, elastic, practical enough in his own field, faithful, a judge of men. There is no such general critic of men and things, no such trustworthy and faithful man, more of the divine realized in him than in any a poetic critic reserving the unqualified nouns for the gods. Alcott is a geometer, a visionary, the Laplace of ethics, more intellect, less of the affections, sight beyond talents, a substratum of practical skill and knowledge unquestionable, but overlaid and concealed by a faith in the unseen and impracticable, seeks to realize an entire life, a Catholic observer, habitually takes in the farthest star and nebula into his scheme, will be the last man to be disappointed as the ages revolve. His attitude is one of greater faith and expectation than that of any man I know with little to show, with undue share, for a philosopher, of the weakness of humanity, the most hospitable intellect embracing high and low. For children how much that means, for the insane and vagabond, for the poet and scholar. Emerson has special talents unequalled. The divine in man has had no more easy, methodically distinct expression. His personal influence upon young persons greater than any man's. In his world, every man would be a poet, love would reign, beauty would take place, man and nature would harmonize. When Alcott's day comes, laws unsuspected by most will take effect, the system will crystallize according to them, all seals and falsehood will slough off, everything will be in its place. February 22nd, no year. Jean Lepin sat at my door today, three paces from me, at first trembling with fear, yet unwilling to move. A poor wee thing, lean and bony, with ragged ears and sharp nose, scant tail and slender paws. It looked as if nature no longer contained the breed of nobler bloods. The earth stood on its last legs. Is nature, too, unsound at last? I took two steps— and lo, away he scud with elastic spring over the snowy crust into the bushes, a free creature of the forest, still wild and fleet. 
and such then was his nature, and his motion asserted its vigor and dignity. Its large eye looked at first young and diseased, almost dropsical, unhealthy, but it bounded free the venison, straightening its body and its limbs into graceful length, and soon put the forest between me and itself. Emerson does not consider things in respect to their essential utility, but an important partial and relative one, as works of art, perhaps. His probes pass one side of their center of gravity. His exaggeration is of a part, not of the whole. How many an afternoon has been stolen from more profitable, if not more attractive, industry? Afternoons when a good run of custom might have been expected on the main street, such as tempt the ladies out a-shopping, spent, I say, by me away in the meadows, and the well-nigh hopeless attempt to set the river on fire or be set on fire by it, with such tinder as I had, with such flint as I was. Trying at least to make it flow with milk and honey, as I had heard of, or liquid gold, and drown myself without getting wet. A laudable enterprise, though I have not much to show for it. So many autumn days spent outside the town, trying to hear what was in the wind, to hear it and carry it express. I well-nigh sunk all my capital in it, and lost my own breath into the bargain, by running in the face of it. Depend upon it, if it had concerned either of the parties, it would have appeared in the Yeoman's Gazette, the Freeman, with other earliest intelligence. For many years I was self-appointed inspector of snowstorms and rainstorms, and did my duty faithfully, though I never received one cent for it. Surveyor, if not of higher ways, than of forest paths and all across lot routes, keeping many open ravines bridged and passable at all seasons, where the public keel had testified to the importance of the same, all not only without charge, but even at considerable risk and inconvenience. Many a mower would have forborne to complain had he been aware of the invisible public good that was in jeopardy. So I went on, I may say without boasting, I trust, faithfully minding my business without a partner, till it became more and more evident that my townsmen would not, after all, admit me into the list of town officers, nor make the place a sinecure with moderate allowance. I have looked after the wild stock of the town, which pastures in common, and every one knows that these cattles give you a good deal of trouble in the way of leaping fences. I have counted and registered all the eggs I could find at least, 
and have had an eye to all nooks and corners of the farm, though I didn't always know whether Jonas or Solomon worked in a particular field today. That was none of my business. I only knew him for one of the men, and trusted that he was as well employed as I was. I had to make my daily entries in the general farm book, and my duties may sometimes have made me a little stubborn and unyielding. Many a day spent on the hilltops waiting for the sky to fall, that I might catch something, though I never caught much, only a little manna-wise, that would dissolve again in the sun. My accounts, indeed, which I can swear to, have been faithfully kept, I have never got audited, still less accepted, still less paid and settled. However, I haven't set my heart upon that. I have watered the red huckleberry and the sand cherry and the hoopwood tree, and the cornell and spoon hunt and yellow violet, which might have withered else in dry seasons, the white grape to find the bottom of walden pond and what inlet and outlet it might have i found at length that as they were not likely to offer me any office in the courthouse any curacy or living anywhere else i must shift for myself i must furnish myself with the necessaries of life now watching from the observatory of the cliffs or a knack to telegraph any new arrival, to see if Wachusett, Watatik, or Monadnock had got any nearer. Climbing trees for the same purpose. I have been reporter for so many years to one of the journals of no very wide circulation, and, as is too common, got only my pains for my labor. Literary contracts are little binding. The unlimited anxiety, strain, and care of some persons is one very incurable form of disease. Simple arithmetic might have corrected it, for the life of every man has, after all, an epic integrity and nature adapts herself to our weaknesses and deficiencies as well as talents. No doubt it is indispensable that we should do our work between sun and sun, but only a wise man will know what that is. And yet how much work will be left undone, put off to the next day, and yet the system goes on. We presume commonly to take care of ourselves, and trust as little as possible. Vigilant more or less all our days, we say our prayers at night, and commit ourselves to uncertainties, as if in our very days and most vigilant moments the great part were not a necessary trust still. How serenity, anxiety, confidence, fear paint the heavens for us all the laws of nature will bend and adapt themselves to the least motion of man 
all change is a miracle to contemplate but it is a miracle which is taking place unobserved every instant when all is ready it takes place and only a miracle could stay it we are compelled to live so thoroughly and sincerely reflecting on our steps reverencing our life that we never make allowance for the possible changes we may waive just so much care of ourselves as we devote of care elsewhere End of chapter eight chapter nine eighteen thirty seven to eighteen forty seven at the age of twenty to thirty part one of the journal of henry david thoreau volume one eighteen thirty seven to eighteen forty six this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nine part one this chapter consists of paragraphs chiefly undated taken from a large commonplace book containing transcripts from earlier journals thoreau drew largely from this book in writing the week and to a less extent in writing walden passages used in these volumes as far as noted and those duplicating earlier journal entries already printed in the preceding pages have been omitted all the matter in the book appears to have been written before eighteen forty seven i was born upon thy bank river my blood flows in thy stream and thou meanderest forever at the bottom of my dream this great but silent traveller which had been so long moving past my door at three miles an hour might i not trust myself under its escort in friendship we worship moral beauty without the formality of religion consider how much the sun and the summer the buds of spring and the seared leaves of autumn are related to the cabins of the settlers which we discover on the shore how all the rays which paint the landscape radiate from them the flight of the crow and the gyrations of the hawk have reference to their roofs friends do not interchange their commonwealth but each puts his finger into the private coffer of the other they will be most familiar they will be most unfamiliar for they will be so one and single that common themes will not have to be bandied between them but in silence they will digest them as one mind but they will at the same time be so two and double that each will be to the other as admirable and as inaccessible as a star he will view them as it were through optic glass at evening from the top of Fessolet, and after the longest earthly period he will still be in apogee to him it the boat had been loaded at the door the evening before half a mile from the river and provided with wheels against emergencies but 
with the bulky cargo which we stevedores had stowed in it, it proved but an indifferent land carriage. For water and water casks, there was a plentiful supply of muskmelons from our patch, which had just begun to be ripe, and chests and spare spars and sails and tent and guns and munitions for the galleon. And as we pushed it through the meadows to the river's bank, we stepped as lightly about it as if a portion of our own bulk and burden was stored in its hold. We were amazed to find ourselves outside still, with scarcely independent force enough to push or pull effectually. The robin is seen flying directly and high in the air at this season, especially over rivers, where in the morning they are constantly passing and repassing in company with the blackbird. I have never insisted enough on the nakedness and simplicity of friendship, the result of all emotions, their subsidence, a fruit of the temperate zone. The friend is an unrelated man, solitary and of distinct outline. Must not our whole lives go unexplained, without regard to us, notwithstanding a few flourishes of ours, which themselves need explanation? Yet a friend does not afford us cheap contrasts or encounters. He forbears to ask explanations, but doubts and surmises with full faith as we silently ponder our fates. He is vested with full powers, plenipotentiary, all in all. Quote, Plato gives science sublime counsels, directs her toward the regions of the ideal. Aristotle gives her positive and severe laws and directs her toward a practical end. End quote. D. Girando. All day the dark blue outline of crotched mountain in Goffstown skirted the horizon. We took pleasure in beholding its outline, because at this distance our vision could so easily grasp the design of the founder. It was a pretty victory to conquer the distance and dimensions so easily with our eyes, which it would take our feet so long to traverse. Notwithstanding the unexplained mystery of nature, man still pursues his studies with confidence, ever ready to grasp the secret, as if the truth were only contained, not withheld. As one of the three circles on the coconut is always so soft that it may be pierced with a thorn, and the traveler is grateful for the thick shell which held the liquor so faithfully. Gracefulness is undulatory like these waves, and perhaps the sailor acquires a superior suppleness and grace through the planks of his ship from the element on which he lives. The song sparrow, whose voice is one of the first heard in the spring, sings occasionally throughout the season, from a greater depth in the summer, as it were behind the notes of other birds. 
as the temperature and density of the atmosphere, so the aspects of our life vary. In this bright and chaste light, the world seemed like a pavilion made for holidays and washed in light. The ocean was a summer's lake, and the land a smooth lawn for disport, while in the horizon the sunshine seemed to fall on walled towns and villas, and the course of our lives was seen winding on like a country road over the plain. When we looked out from under our tent, the trees were seen dimly through the mist, and a cool dew hung upon the grass, and in the damp air we seemed to inhale a solid fragrance. Communicating with the villas and hills and forests on either hand, by the glances we sent them, or the echoes we awakened, we glanced up many a pleasant ravine with its farmhouse in the distance where some contributory stream came in again the sight of a sawmill and a few forsaken eel-pots were all that greeted us while we sail here we can remember unreservedly those friends who dwell far away on the banks and by the sources of this very river and people this world for us without any harsh and unfriendly interruptions at noon his horn is heard echoing from shore to shore to give notice of his approach to the farmer's wife with whom he is to take his dinner frequently in such retired scenes that only muskrats and kingfishers seem to hear if ever our idea of a friend is realized, it will be in some broad and generous natural person, as frank as the daylight, in whose presence our behavior will be as simple and unconstrained as the wanderer amid the recesses of these hills. I who sail now in a boat, have I not sailed in a thought? Vide Chaucer the hardest material obeys the same law with the most fluid trees are but rivers of sap and woody fibre flowing from the atmosphere and emptying into the earth by their trunks as their roots flow upward to the surface and in the heavens there are rivers of stars and milky ways there are rivers of rock on the surface and rivers of ore in the bowels of the earth and thoughts flow and circulate and seasons lapse as tributaries of the current year consider the phenomena of morn or eve and you will say that nature has perfected herself by an eternity of practice evening stealing over the fields the stars coming to bathe in retired waters the shadows of the trees creeping farther and farther into the meadows, and a myriad phenomena beside. Occasionally we had to muster all our energy to get round a point where the river broke rippling over rocks, and the maples trailed their branches in the stream. The future reader of history will associate this generation with the red man in his thoughts, 
and give it credit for some sympathy with that race. Our history will have some copper tints and reflections at least, and be read as through an Indian summer haze. But such were not our associations, but the Indian is absolutely forgotten but by some persevering poets. The white man has commenced a new era. What do our anniversaries commemorate but white men's exploits? For Indian deeds, there must be an Indian memory. The white man will remember his own only. We have forgotten their hostility as well as friendship. Who can realize that, within the memory of this generation, the remnant of an ancient and dusky race of mortals called the Stockbridge Indians, within the limits of this very state, furnished a company for the war on condition only that they should not be expected to fight white man's fashion, or to train, but Indian fashion. And occasionally their wigwams are seen on the banks of this very stream still, solitary and inobvious, like the cabins of the muskrats in the meadows. They seem like a race who have exhausted the secrets of nature, tanned with age, while this young and still fair Saxon slip, on whom the sun has not long shone, is but commencing its career. Their memory is in harmony with the russet hue of the fall of the year. For the Indian there is no safety but in the plough. If he would not be pushed into the Pacific, he must seize hold of a plough-tail and let go his bow and arrow, his fish-spear and rifle. This the only Christianity that will save him. His fate says sternly to him, Forsake the hunter's life and enter into the agricultural, the second state of man. Root yourselves a little deeper in the soil if you would continue to be the occupants of the country. But I confess I have no little sympathy with the Indians and hunter-men. They seem to me a distinct and equally respectable people, born to wander and to hunt, and not to be inoculated with the twilight civilization of the white man. Father Lejeune, a French missionary, affirmed, Quote, that the Indians were superior in intellect to the French peasantry of that time, and advised that laborers should be sent from France in order to work for the Indians. The Indian population within the present boundaries of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut has been estimated not to have exceeded 40,000 before the epidemic disease which preceded the landing of the pilgrims, and it was far more dense here than elsewhere. Yet they had no more land than they wanted. The present white population is more than 1,500,000, and two-thirds of the land is unimproved. The Indian, perchance, has not made up his mind to some things which the white man has consented to. He has not, 
in all respects stooped so low and hence though he too loves food and warmth he draws his tattered blanket about him and follows his father's rather than barter his birthright he dies and no doubt his genius judges well for him but he is not worsted in the fight he is not destroyed he only migrates beyond the pacific to more spacious and happier hunting grounds a race of hunters can never withstand the inroads of a race of husbandmen the latter burrow in the night into their country and undermine them and even if the hunter is brave enough to resist his game is timid and has already fled the rifle alone would never exterminate it but the plough is a more fatal weapon it wins the country inch by inch and holds all it gets what detained the cherokees so long was the two thousand nine hundred and twenty-three ploughs which that people possessed and if they had grasped their handles more firmly they would never have been driven beyond the mississippi no sense of justice will ever restrain the farmer from ploughing up the land which is only hunted over by his neighbors no hunting field was ever well fenced and surveyed and its bounds accurately marked unless it were an english park it is a property not held by the hunter so much as by the game which roams it and was never well secured by warranty deeds the farmer in his treaties says only or means only so far will i plough this summer for he has not seed corn enough to plant more but every summer the seed is grown which plants a new strip of the forest the african will survive for he is docile and is patiently learning his trade and dancing at his labor but the indian does not often dance unless it be the war dance in whatever moment we awake to life as now i this evening after walking along the bank and hearing the same evening sounds that were heard of yore it seems to have slumbered just below the surface as in the spring the new verdure which covers the fields has never retreated far from the winter all actions and objects and events lose their distinct importance in this hour in the brightness of the vision as when sometimes the pure light that attends the setting sun falls on the trees and houses the light itself is the phenomenon and no single object is so distinct to our admiration as the light itself if criticism is liable to abuse it has yet a great and humane apology when my sentiments aspire to be universal then my neighbor has an equal interest to see that the expression be just within myself my friends why should we live life is an idle war a toilsome peace today i would not give one small consent for its securest ease 
shall we outwear the year in our pavilions on its dusty plain and yet no signal here to strike our tents and take the road again or else drag up the slope the heavy ordinance of religion's train useless but in the hope some far remote and heavenward hill to gain the tortoises rapidly dropped into the water as our boat ruffled the surface amid the willows we glided along through the transparent water breaking the reflections of the trees not only are we late to find our friends but mankind are late and there is no record of a great success in history my friend is not chiefly wise or beautiful or noble at least it is not for me to know it he has no visible form nor appreciable character i can never praise him nor esteem him praiseworthy for i should sunder him from myself and put a bar between us let him not think he can please me by any behavior or even treat me well enough when he treats i retreat I know of no rule which holds so true as that we are always paid for our suspicion by finding what we suspect. There can be no fairer recompense than this. Our suspicions exercise a demoniacal power over the subject of them. By some obscure law of influence, when we are perhaps unconsciously the subject of another's suspicion, we feel a strong impulse, even when it is contrary to our nature, to do that which he expects but reprobates. No man seems to be aware that his influence is the result of his entire character, both that which is subject and that which is superior to his understanding. And what he really means or intends, it is not in his power to explain or offer an apology for. No man was ever party to a secure and settled friendship. It is no more a constant phenomenon than meteors and lightning. It is a war of positions, of silent tactics. I mark the summer's swift decline, the springing sward its grave clothes weaves, Oh, could I catch the sounds remote, could I but tell to human ear the strains which on the breezes float and sing the requiem of the dying year. September twenty ninth, eighteen forty two. Today the lark sings again down in the meadow, and the robin peeps, and the bluebirds, old and young, have revisited their box, as if they would fain repeat the summer without the intervention of winter, if nature would let them. Beauty is a finer utility whose end we do not see. End of chapter 9, part 11837 to 1847, at the age of twenty to thirty, 
Part Two of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume One, eighteen thirty seven to eighteen forty six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, Part Two. October seventh, eighteen forty two. A little girl has just brought me a purple finch or American linnet. These birds are now moving south. It reminds me of the pine and spruce and the juniper and cedar on whose berries it feeds. It has the crimson hues of the October evenings, and its plumage still shines as if it had caught and preserved some of their tints. Beams? We know it chiefly as a traveler. It reminds me of many things I had forgotten. Many a serene evening lies snugly packed under its wing. Gower writes like a man of common sense and good parts who has undertaken with steady rather than high purpose to do narrative with rhyme, with little or no invention, following in the track of the old fablers, he employs his leisure and his pencraft to entertain his readers and speak a good word for the right. He has no fire, or rather blaze, though occasionally some brand's end peeps out from the ashes, especially if you approach the heap in a dark day, and if you extend your hands over it, you experience a slight warmth there more than elsewhere. In fair weather, you may see a slight smoke go up here and there. He narrates what Chaucer sometimes sings. He tells his story with a fair understanding of the original, and sometimes it gains a little in blunt plainness and in point in his hands. Unlike the early Saxon and later English, his poetry is but a plainer and directer speech than other men's prose. He might have been a teamster and written his rhymes on his wagon seat as he went to mill with a load of plaster. The banks by retired roadsides are covered with asters, hazels, brakes, and huckleberry bushes emitting a dry, ripe scent. Facts must be learned directly and personally, but principles may be deduced from information. The collector of facts possesses a perfect physical organization, the philosopher a perfect intellectual one. One can walk, the other sit. One acts, the other thinks. But the poet in some degree does both, and uses and generalizes the results of both. He generalizes the widest deductions of philosophy. October 21st, 1842. The atmosphere is so dry and transparent, and, as it were, inflammable at this season, that a candle in the grass shines white and dazzling and purer and brighter the farther off it is. Its heat seems to have been extracted, and only its harmless refulgent light left. It is a star-dropped 
down. The ancients were more than poetically true when they called fire Vulcan's flower. Light is somewhat almost moral, the most intense, as the fixed stars and our own sun, has an unquestionable preeminence among the elements. At a certain stage in the generation of all life, no doubt, light as well as heat is developed. It guides to the first rudiments of life. There is a vitality in heat and light. Men who are felt rather than understood are being most rapidly developed. They stand many deep, in many parts, the Merrimack is as wild and natural as ever, and the shore and surrounding scenery exhibit only the revolutions of nature. The pine stands up erect on its brink, and the alders and willows fringe its edge. Only the beaver and the red man have departed. My friend knows me face to face, but many only venture to meet me under the shield of another's authority, backed by an invisible corps du reserve of wise friends and relations. To such, I say, farewell. We cannot dwell alone in the world. Sometimes, by a pleasing sad wisdom, we find ourselves carried beyond all counsel and sympathy. Our friend's words do not reach us. The truly noble and settled character of a man is not put forward as the king or conqueror does not march foremost in a procession. Among others I have picked up a curious spherical stone, probably an implement of war, like a small paving stone about the size of a goose egg, with a groove worn quite round it, by which it was probably fastened to a thong or a withe, and answered to strike a severe blow like a shotted colt. I have since seen larger ones of the same description. These arrowheads are of every color and of various forms and materials, though commonly made of a stone which has a conchoidal fracture. Many small ones are found of white quartz, which are mere equilateral triangles, with one side slightly convex. These were probably small shot for birds and squirrels. The chips, which were made in their manufacture, are also found in large numbers wherever a lodge stood for any length of time and these slivers are the surest indication of indian ground since the geologists tell us that this stone is not to be found in this vicinity the spearheads are of the same form and material only larger some are found as perfect and sharp as ever for time has not the effect of blunting them but when they break they have a ragged and cutting edge. Yet they are so brittle that they can hardly be carried in the pocket without being broken. It is a matter of wonder how the Indians made even those rude implements without iron or steel tools to work with. 
it is doubtful whether one of our mechanics with all the aids of yankee ingenuity could soon learn to copy one of the thousands under our feet it is well known the art of making flints with a cold chisel as practised in austria requires long practice and knack in the operator but the arrowhead is of much more irregular form and like the flint such is the nature of the stone must be struck out by a succession of skilful blows an indian to whom i once exhibited some but to whom they were objects of as much curiosity as to myself suggested that as white men have but one blacksmith so indians had one arrowhead maker for many families but there are the marks of too many forges unless they were like travelling cobblers to allow of this i have seen some arrowheads from the south seas which were precisely similar to those from here so necessary so little whimsical is this little tool so has the steel hatchet its prototype in the stone one of the indian as the stone hatchet in the necessities of man venerable are these ancient arts whose early history is lost in that of the race itself here too is the pestle and mortar ancient forms and symbols older than the plough or the spade the invention of that plough which now turns them up to the surface marks the era of their burial an era which can never have its history which is older than history itself these are relics of an era older than modern civilization compared with which greece and rome and egypt are modern and still the savage retreats and the white man advances i have the following account of some relics in my possession which were brought from taunton in bristol county a field which had been planted with corn for many years the sod being broken the wind began to blow away the soil and then the sand for several years until at length it was blown away to the depth of several feet where it ceased and the ground appeared strewed with the remains of an indian village with regular circles of stones which formed the foundation of their wigwams and numerous implements beside commonly we use life sparingly we husband it as if it were scarce and admit the right of prudence but occasionally we see how ample and inexhaustible is the stock from which we so scantily draw and learn that we need not be prudent that we may be prodigal and all expenses will be met am i not as far from those scenes though i have wandered a different route as my companion who has finished the voyage of life am i not most dead who have not life to die and cast off my sere leaves it seemed the only right way to enter this country 
borne on the bosom of the flood which receives the tribute of its innumerable vales. The river was the only key adequate to unlock its maze. We beheld the hills and valleys, the lakes and streams, in their natural order and position. A state should be a complete epitome of the earth, a natural principality, and by the gradations of its surface and soil conduct the traveller to its principal marts. Nature is stronger than law, and the sure but slow influence of wind and water will balk the efforts of restricting legislatures. Man cannot set up bounds with safety, but where the revolutions of nature will confirm and strengthen, not obliterate them. Every man's success is in proportion to his average ability. The meadow flowers spring and bloom where the waters annually deposit their slime, not where they reach in some freshet only. We seem to do ourselves little credit in our own eyes for our performance, which all know must ever fall short of our aspiration and promise, which only we can know entirely. As a stick will avail to reach further than it will strike effectually, since its greatest momentum is a little short of its extreme end. But we do not disappoint our neighbors, a man is not his hope, nor his despair, nor his past deed. But it is in the order of destiny that whatever is remote shall be near. Whatever the eyes see, the hands shall touch. The sentinels upon the turret, and at the window, and on the wall, behold successively the approaching traveller whom the host will soon welcome in the hall. It is not to be forgotten that the poet is innocent, but he is young, he is not yet a parent or a brother to his race. There are a thousand degrees of grace and beauty before absolute humanity and disinterestedness. The meanest man can easily test the noblest. Is he embraced? Does he find him a brother? i am sometimes made aware of a kindness which may have long since been shown which surely memory cannot retain which reflects its light long after its heat i realize my friend that there have been times when thy thoughts of me have been of such lofty kindness that they passed over me like the winds of heaven unnoticed so pure that they presented no object to my eyes, so generous and universal that I did not detect them. Thou hast loved me for what I was not, but for what I aspired to be. We shudder to think of the kindness of our friend which has fallen on us cold, though in some true but tardy hour we have awakened. There has just reached me the kindness of some acts, not to be forgotten, not to be remembered. I wipe off these scores at midnight, at rare intervals, in moments of insight and gratitude. 
far o'er the bow amid the drowsy noon so hegan creeping slow appeareth soon methinks that by a strict behavior i could elicit back the brightest star that hides behind a cloud i have rolled near some other spirit's path and with a pleased anxiety have felt its purer influence on my opaque mass but always was i doomed to learn alas i had scarce changed its sidereal time gray sedulously cultivated poetry but the plant would not thrive his life seems to have needed some more sincere and ruder experience occasionally we rode near enough to a cottage to see the sunflowers before the door and the seed vessels of the poppy like small goblets filled with the waters of lethe but without disturbing the sluggish household driving the small sandpiper before us fog thou drifting meadow of the air where bloom the daisied banks and violets and in whose fenny labyrinths the bittern booms and curlew peeps the heron wades and boding rain-crow clucks low anchored cloud new finland air fountain-head and source of rivers ocean branch that flowest to the sun diluvian spirit or deucalion shroud dewcloth dream drapery and napkin spread by phase spirit of lakes and seas and rivers sea-fowl that with the east wind seekest the shore groping thy way inland by whichever name i please to call thee bear only perfumes and the scent of healing herbs to just men's fields i am amused with the manner in which quarles and his contemporary poets speak of nature with a sort of gallantry as a knight of his lady not as lovers but as having a thorough respect for her and some title to her acquaintance they speak manfully and their lips are not closed by affection the pale-faced lady of the black-eyed knight nature seems to have held her court then and all authors were her gentlemen and esquires and had ready an abundance of courtly expressions quarles is never weak or shallow though coarse and untasteful he presses able-bodied and strong-backed words into his service which have a certain rustic fragrance and force as if now first devoted to literature after having served sincere and stern uses he has the pronunciation of a poet though he stutters he certainly speaks the english tongue with a right manly accent to be sure his poems have the musty odor of a confessional how little curious is man who hath not searched his mystery a span 
but dreams of mines and treasure which he neglects to measure for three score years and ten walks to and fro amid his fellow men o'er this small tract of continental land his fancy bearing no divining wand our uninquiring corpses lie more low than our life's curiosity doth go our most ambitious steps climb not so high as in their hourly sport the sparrows fly yonder clouds blown farther in a day than our most vagrant feet may ever stray surely o lord he hath not greatly erred who hath so little from his birthplace stirred he wanders through this low and shallow world scarcely his bolder thoughts and hopes unfurled through this low-walled world which his huge sin hath hardly room to rest and harbor in bearing his head just o'er some fallow ground some cow-slipped meadows where the bitterns sound he wanders round until his end draws nigh and then lays down his aged head to die and this is life this is that famous strife his head doth court a fathom from the land six feet from where his groveling feet do stand what is called talking is a remarkable though i believe universal phenomenon of human society the most constant phenomenon when men or women come together is talking a chemist might try this experiment in his laboratory with certainty and set down the fact in his journal this characteristic of the race may be considered as established no doubt every one can call to mind numerous conclusive instances some nations it is true are said to articulate more distinctly than others yet the rule holds with those who have the fewest letters in their alphabet men cannot stay long together without talking according to the rules of polite society as all men have two ears and but one tongue they must spend the extra and unavoidable hours of silence in listening to the whisperings of genius and this fact it is that makes silence always respectable in my eyes not that they have anything to communicate or do anything quite natural or important to be done so but by common consent they fall to using the invention of speech and make a conversation good or bad they say things first this one and then that they express their opinions as they are called by a well-directed silence i have sometimes seen threatening and troublesome people routed you sit musing as if you were in broad nature again they cannot stand it their position becomes more and more uncomfortable every moment so much humanity over against one without any disguise not 
even the disguise of speech. They cannot stand it, nor sit against it. Not only must men talk, but for the most part must talk about talk, even about books or dead and buried talk. Sometimes my friend expects a few periods from me. Is he exorbitant? He thinks it is my turn now. Sometimes my companion thinks he has said a good thing, but I don't see the difference. He looks just as he did before. Well, it is no loss. I suppose he has plenty more. Then I have seen very near and intimate, very old friends introduced by very old strangers, with liberty given to talk. The stranger, who knows only the countersign, says, Jonas, Eldred, giving those names which will make a title good in a court of law. It may be presumed that God does not know the Christian names of men. Then Jonas, like a ready soldier, makes a remark, a benediction on the weather it may be, and Eldred swiftly responds, and unburdens his breast, and so the action begins. They bless God and nature many times gratuitously, and part mutually well-pleased, leaving their cards. They did not happen to be present at each other's christening. Sometimes I have listened so attentively, and with so much interest to the whole expression of a man, that I did not hear one word he was saying, and saying, too, with the more vivacity, observing my attention. But a man may be an object of interest to me, though his tongue is pulled out by the roots. Men sometimes do as if they could eject themselves like bits of pack-thread from the end of the tongue. End of chapter 9 Part 2chapter 9 1837 to 1847 at the age of 20 to 30 part 3 of the journal of henry david thoreau volume 1 1837 to 1846 this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 9 part 3 Scholars have, for the most part, a diseased way of looking at the world. They mean by it a few cities and unfortunate assemblies of men and women who might all be concealed in the grass of the prairies. They describe this world as old or new, healthy or diseased, according to the state of their libraries. A little dust more or less on their shelves. When I go abroad from under this shingle or slate roof, I find several things which they have not considered. Their conclusions seem imperfect. As with two eyes we see, and with two ears we hear, with the like advantage is man added to man. Making no complaint, offering no encouragement, one human being is made aware of the neighboring and contemporaneous existence of another. 
such is the tenderness of friendship we never recognize each other as finite and imperfect beings but with a smile and as strangers my intercourse with men is governed by the same laws with my intercourse with nature bonaparte said that the three o'clock in the morning courage was the rarest but i cannot agree with him fear does not awake so early few men are so degenerate as to balk nature by not beginning the day well i hold in my hands a recent volume of essays and poems in its outward aspect like the thousands which the press sends forth and if the gods permitted their own inspiration to be breathed in vain this might be forgotten in the mass but the accents of truth are as sure to be heard on earth as in heaven the more i read it the more i am impressed by its sincerity its depth and grandeur it already seems ancient and has lost the traces of its modern birth it is an evidence of many virtues in the writer more serenely and humbly confident this man has listened to the inspiration which all may hear and with greater fidelity reported it it is therefore a true prophecy and shall at length come to pass it has the grandeur of the greek tragedy or rather its hebrew original yet it is not necessarily referred to any form of faith the slumbering heavy depth of its sentences is perhaps without recent parallel it lies like the sward in its native pasture where its roots are never disturbed and not spread over a sandy embankment on fields o'er which the reaper's hand has passed lit by the harvest moon and autumn sun my thoughts like stubble floating in the wind and of such fineness as october airs there after harvest could i glean my life a richer harvest reaping without toil and weaving gorgeous fancies at my will in subtler webs than finest summer haze in october the air is really the fine element the poets describe the fields emit a dry and temperate odor there is something in the refined and elastic air which reminds us of a work of art it is like a verse of anacreon or a tragedy of aeschylus all parts of nature belong to one head as the curls of a maiden's hair how beautifully flow the seasons as one year and all streams as one ocean i hate museums there is nothing so weighs upon my spirits they are the catacombs of nature one green bud of spring one willow catkin one faint trill from a migrating sparrow would set the world on its legs again the life that is in a single green weed is of more worth than all this death 
They are dead nature, collected by dead men. I know not whether I muse most at the bodies stuffed with cotton and sawdust, or those stuffed with bowels and fleshy fiber outside the cases. Where is the proper herbarium, the true cabinet of shells and museum of skeletons, but in the meadow where the flower bloomed, by the seaside where the tide cast up the fish, and on the hills and in the valleys where the beast laid down its life and the skeleton of the traveller reposes on the grass? What right have mortals to parade these things on their legs again, with their wires, and when heaven has decreed that they shall return to dust again, to return them to sawdust? Would you have a dried specimen of a world, or a pickled one? Embalming is a sin against heaven and earth, against heaven who has recalled the soul and set free the servile elements, and against the earth which is thus robbed of her dust. I have had my right-perceiving senses so disturbed in these haunts as to mistake a veritable living man for a stuffed specimen, and surveyed him with dumb wonder as the strangest of the whole collection." for the strangest is that which, being in many particulars most like, is in some essential particular most unlike. It is one great and rare merit in the old English tragedy that it says something. The words slide away very fast, but toward some conclusion. It has to do with things, and the reader feels as if he were advancing. It does not make much odds what message the author has to deliver at this distance of time, since no message can startle us, but how he delivers it, that it may be done in a downright and manly way. They come to the point and do not waste the time. They say that Carew was a laborious writer, but his poems do not show it. They are finished but do not show the marks of the chisel. Drummond was indeed a quiddler, with little fire or fibre, and rather a taste for poetry than a taste of it. After all, we draw on very gradually in English literature to Shakespeare, through Peel and Marlowe, to say nothing of Raleigh and Spencer and Sidney. We hear the same great tone already sounding to which Shakespeare added a serener wisdom and clearer expression. Its chief characteristics of reality and unaffected manliness are there. The more we read of the literature of those times, the more does acquaintance divest the genius of Shakespeare of the in some measure false mystery which has thickened around it, and leave it shrouded in the grander mystery of daylight. His critics have for the most part made their contemporaries less that they might make Shakespeare more. The distinguished men of those times had a great flow of spirits, 
a cheerful and elastic wit far removed from the solemn wisdom of later days what another thing was fame and a name then than now this is seen in the familiar manner in which they were spoken of by each other and the nation at large kit marlowe and george peel and will shakespeare and ben johnson great fellows chaps we pass through all degrees of life from the least organic to the most complex sometimes we are mere pudding stone and scory the present is the instant work and near process of living and will be found in the last analysis to be nothing more nor less than digestion sometimes it is true it is in digestion daniel deserves praise for his moderation and sometimes has risen into poetry before you know it strong sense appears in his epistles but you have to remember too often in what age he wrote and yet that shakespeare was his contemporary his style is without the tricks of the trade and really in advance of his age we can well believe that he was a retired scholar who would keep himself shut up in his house two whole months together donne was not a poet but a man of strong sense a sturdy english thinker full of conceits and whimsicalities hammering away at his subject be it eulogy or epitaph sonnet or satire with the patience of a day laborer without taste but with an occasional fine distinction or poetic phrase he was rather dr dunn than the poet dunn his letters are perhaps best lovelace is what his name expresses of slight material to make a poet's fame his goings and comings are of no great account his taste is not so much love of excellence as fear of failure though in one instance he has written fearlessly and memorably how wholesome are the natural laws to contemplate as gravity heat light moisture dryness only let us not interfere let the soul withdraw into the chambers of the heart let the mind reside steadily in the labyrinth of the brain and not interfere with hands or feet more than with other parts of nature thompson was a true lover of nature and seems to have needed only a deeper human experience to have taken a more vigorous and lofty flight he is deservedly popular and has found a place on many shelves and in many cottages there are great merits in the seasons and the almanac in autumn quote, a tempered suns arise while broad and brown below extensive harvests hang the heavy head rich silent deep they stand End quote. 
the moon in autumn, quote, her spotted disk, where mountains rise, umbrageous dales descend, gives all his blaze again, void of its flame, and sheds a softer day, now through the passing cloud she seems to stoop, now up the pure cerulean rides sublime. The whole air whitens with a boundless tide of silver radiance trembling round the world. My friend, thou art not of some other race and family of men. Thou art flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Has not nature associated us in many ways? Water from the same fountain, lime from the same quarry, grain from the same field compose our bodies. And perchance our elements but reassert their ancient kindredship. Is it of no significance that I have so long partaken of the same loaf with thee, have breathed the same air summer and winter, have felt the same heat and cold, the same fruits of summer have been pleased to refresh us both, and thou hast never had a thought of different fibre from my own? Our kindred of one blood with us, with the favour and not the displeasure of the gods, we have partaken the same bread. It is hard to know rocks. They are crude and inaccessible to our nature. We have not enough of the stony element in us. It is hard to know men by rumour only, but to stand near somewhat living and conscious. Who would not sail through mutiny and storm farther than Columbus, to reach the fabulous retreating shores of some continent man? My friend can only be in any measure my foe, because he is fundamentally my friend, for everything is, after all, more nearly what it should rightfully be than that which it is simply by failing to be the other. It, friendship, cannot be the subject of reconciliation or the theme of conversation ever between friends. The true friend must in some sense disregard all professions of friendship and forget them. It is as far from pity as from contempt. I should hesitate even to call it the highest sympathy, since the word is of suspicious origin and suggests suffering rather than joy. It was established before religion, for men are not friends in religion, but over and through it. And it records no apostasy or repentance, but there is a certain divine and innocent and perennial health about it. Its charity is generosity, its virtue nobleness, its religion trust. We come nearer to friendship with flowers and inanimate objects than with merely affectionate and loving men. It is not for the friend to be just even.' 
at least he is not to be lost in this attribute but to be only a large and free existence representative of humanity its general court admirable to us as the heavenly bodies but like them affording rather a summer heat and daylight the light and fire of sunshine and stars rather than the intense heats and splendors which our weakness and appetite require yesterday i skated after a fox over the ice occasionally he sat on his haunches and barked at me like a young wolf it made me think of the bear and her cubs mentioned by captain perry i think all brutes seem to have a genius for mystery an oriental aptitude for symbols and the language of signs and this is the origin of pilpe and aesop the fox manifested an almost human suspicion of mystery in my actions while i skated directly after him he cantered at the top of his speed but when i stood still though his fear was not abated some strange but inflexible law of his nature caused him to stop also and sit again on his haunches while i still stood motionless he would go slowly a rod to one side then sit and bark then a rod to the other side and sit and bark again but did not retreat as if spellbound when however i commenced the pursuit again he found himself released from his durance plainly the fox belongs to a different order of things from that which reigns in the village our courts though they offer a bounty for his hide and our pulpits though they draw many a moral from his cunning are in few senses contemporary with his free forest life to the poet considered as an artist his words must be as the relation of his oldest and finest memory and wisdom derived from the remotest experience i have thought when walking in the woods through a certain retired dell bordered with shrub oaks and pines far from the village and affording a glimpse only through an opening of the mountains in the horizon how my life might pass there simple and true and natural and how many things would be impossible to be done there how many books i might not read why avoid my friends and live among strangers why not reside in my native country many a book is written which does not necessarily suggest or imply the phenomenon or object to explain which it professes to have been written every child should be encouraged to study not man's system of nature but nature's giles fletcher knew how to write and has left english verses behind he is the most valuable imitator of the spenserian stanza and adds a moral tone of his own 
to a marsh hawk in spring. There is health in thy gray wing, health of nature's furnishing. Say, thou modern winged antique, was thy mistress ever sick? In each heaving of thy wing thou dost health and leisure bring. Thou dost wave disease and pain, and resume new life again. Man walks in nature still alone, and knows no one, discovers no lineament nor feature of any creature. Though all the firmament is o'er me bent, yet still I miss the grace of an intelligent and kindred face. I still must seek the friend who does with nature blend, who is the person in her mask. He is the friend I ask. Who is the expression of her meaning? Who is the uprightness of her leaning? Who is the grown child of her weaning? We twain would walk together through every weather, and see this aged nature go with a bending stature, the center of this world, the face of nature, the sight of human life, some sure foundation, and nucleus of a nation, at least a private station. It is the saddest thought of all that what we are to others that we are much more to ourselves, avaricious, mean, irascible, affected. We are the victims of these faults. If our pride offends our humble neighbor, much more does it offend ourselves, though our lives are never so private and solitary. If the Indian is somewhat of a stranger in nature, the gardener is too much a familiar. There is something vulgar and foul in the latter's closeness to his mistress, something noble and cleanly in the former's distance. Yet the hunter seems to have a property in the moon which even the farmer has not. Ah, the poet knows uses of plants which are not easily reported, though he cultivates no parterre. See how the sun smiles on him while he walks in the gardener's aisles, rather than on the gardener. Not only has the foreground of a picture its glass of transparent crystal spread over it, but the picture itself is a glass or transparent medium to a remoter background. We demand only of all pictures that they be perspicuous, that the laws of perspective have been truly observed. It is not the fringed foreground of the desert, nor the intermediate oasis that detain the eye and the imagination, but the infinite level and roomy horizon, where the sky meets the sand and heavens and earth, the ideal and actual are coincident, the background into which leads the path of the pilgrim. 
all things are in revolution, it is the one law of nature by which order is preserved, and time itself lapses and is measured. Yet some things men will do from age to age, and some things they will not do. End of chapter 9, part 3「how many young finny contemporaries of various character and destiny form and habits we have even in this water and it will not be forgotten by some memory that we were contemporaries it is of some import we shall be some time friends i trust and know each other better distrust is too prevalent now we are so much alike, have so many faculties in common. I have not yet met with the philosopher who could, in a quite conclusive, undoubtful way, show me thee, and if not thee, then how any difference between man and a fish. We are so much alike. How much could a really tolerant, patient, humane, and truly great and natural man make of them if he should try. For they are to be understood, surely, as all things else, by no other method than that of sympathy. It is easy to say what they are not to us, i.e., what we are not to them, but what we might and ought to be is another affair. In the tributaries, the brook minnow and the trout, even in the rills emptying into the river, over which you stride at a step, you may see small trout, not so large as your finger, glide past or hide under the bank. The character of this, the horned pout, as indeed of all fishes, depends directly upon that of the water it inhabits, those taken in clear and sandy water being of brighter hue and cleaner and of firmer and sweeter flesh. It makes a peculiar squeaking noise when drawn out, which has given it the name of the minister or preacher. The bream is the familiar and homely sparrow, which makes her nest everywhere and is early and late. The pickerel is the hawk, a fish of prey, hovering over the finny broods. The pout is the owl, which steals so noiselessly about at evening with its clumsy body. The shiner is the summer yellow bird or goldfinch of the river. The sucker is the sluggish bittern or stake driver. The minnow is the hummingbird. The trout is the partridge woodpecker. The perch is the robin. 
we read Marlowe as so much poetical pabulum. It is food for poets, water from the Castalian spring, some of the atmosphere of Parnassus, raw and crude indeed, and at times breezy but pure and bracing. Few have so rich a phrase. He had drunk deep of the Pierian spring, though not deep enough, and had that fine madness, as Drayton says, quote, which justly should possess a poet's brain. End quote. We read his Dr. Faustus, Dido, Queen of Carthage, and Hero and Leander, especially the last, without getting wearied. He had many of the qualities of a great poet, and was in some degree worthy to precede Shakespeare. But he seems to have run to waste for want of seclusion and solitude, as if mere pause and deliberation would have added a new element of greatness to his poetry. In his unquestionably fine heroic tone, it would seem as if he had the rarest part of genius, and education could have added the rest. The hero and Leander tells better for his character than the anecdotes which survive. I fain would stretch me by the highway side to thaw and trickle with the melting snow that mingled soul and body with the tide I too might through the pores of nature flow, might help to forward the new spring along if it were mine to choose my toil or day, scouring the roads with yonder sluice-way throng, and so work out my tax on her highway. Yet let us thank the purblind race, who still have thought it good, with lasting stone to mark the place where braver men have stood, in Concord, town of quiet name, and quiet fame as well. I've seen ye, sisters, on the mountainside, when your green mantles fluttered in the wind. I've seen your footprints on the lake's smooth shore, lesser than man's, a more ethereal trace, I have heard of ye as some far-famed race, daughters of gods whom I should one day meet, or mothers, I might say, of all our race. I reverence your natures, so like mine, yet strangely different, like but still unlike, thou only stranger that hast crossed my path. Accept my hospitality, let me hear the message which thou bringest, made different from me, perchance thou art made to be, the creature of a different destiny. I know not who ye are that meekly stand, thus side by side, with man in every land, when did ye form alliance with our race, ye children of the moon, who in mild nights vaulted upon the hills and sought this earth? 
reveal that which I fear ye cannot tell, wherein ye are not I, wherein ye dwell, where I can never come. What boots is that I do regard ye so? Does it make suns to shine or crops to grow? What boots it that I never should forget, that I have sisters sitting for me yet? And what are sisters? The robust man who can so stoutly strive in this bleak world is hardly kept alive. And who is it protects ye, smooths your way? We can afford to lend a willing ear occasionally to those earnest reformers of the age. Let us treat them hospitably. Shall we be charitable only to the poor? What though they are fanatics? Their errors are likely to be generous errors, and these may be they who will put to rest the American church and the American government and awaken better ones in their stead. Let us not meanly seek to maintain our delicate lives in chambers or in legislative halls by a timid watchfulness of the rude mobs that threaten to pull down our baby houses. Let us not think to raise a revenue which shall maintain our domestic quiet by an impost on the liberty of speech. Let us not think to live by the principle of self-defense. Have we survived our accidents hitherto, think you, by virtue of our good swords, that three-foot lath that dangles by your side, or those brazen-mouthed pieces under the burying hill which the trainers keep to hurrah with in the April and July mornings? do our protectors burrow under the burying-ground hill on the edge of the bean-field which you all know gorging themselves once a year with powder and smoke and kept bright and in condition by a chafing of oiled rags and rotten stone have we resigned the protection of our hearts and civil liberties to that feathered race of wading birds and marching men who drill but once a month, and I mean no reproach to our Concord train-pans, who certainly make a handsome appearance and dance well. Do we enjoy the sweets of domestic life undisturbed, because the naughty boys are all shut up in that whitewashed stone-yard, as it is called? and see the concord meadows only through a grating. No, let us live amid the free play of the elements. Let the dogs bark, let the cocks crow, and the sun shine, and the winds blow. Ye do commend me to all virtue ever, and simple truth the law by which we live. Methinks that I can trust your clearer sense and your immediate knowledge of the truth. I would obey your influence, one with fate. There is a true march to the sentence, 
as if a man or a body of men were actually making progress there step by step. And these are not the mere disjecta membra, the dispersed and mutilated members, though it were of heroes, which can no longer walk and join themselves to their comrades. They are not perfect, nor liberated pieces of art for the galleries, yet they stand on the natural and broad pedestal of the living rock, but have a principle of life and growth in them still, as has that human nature from which they spring. It is a marvel how the birds contrive to survive in this world. These tender sparrows that flit from bush to bush this evening, though it is so late, do not seem improvident, but appear to have found a roost for the night. They must succeed by weakness and reliance, for they are not bold and enterprising, as their mode of life would seem to require, but very weak and tender creatures. I have seen a little chipping sparrow come too early in the spring, shivering on an apple twig, drawing in its head and striving to warm it in its muffled feathers, and it had no voice to intercede with nature, but peeped as helpless as an infant and was ready to yield up its spirit and die without any effort and yet this was no new spring in the revolution of the seasons our offence is rank it smells to heaven in the midst of our village as in most villages there is a slaughter-house and throughout the summer months day and night to the distance of half a mile, which embraces the greater part of the village, the air is filled with such scents as we instinctively avoid in a woodland walk. And doubtless, if our senses were once purified and educated by a simpler and truer life, we should not consent to live in such a neighborhood. George Melvin, our Concord trapper, told me that in going to the spring near his house, where he kept his minnows for bait, he found that they were all gone, and immediately suspected that a mink had got them. So he removed the snow all around, and laid open the trail of a mink underneath, which he traced to his hole, which were the fragments of his booty. There he set his trap, and baited it with fresh minnows. Going again soon to the spot, he found one of the mink's forelegs in the trap gnawed off near the body, and having set it again, he caught the mink with his three legs, the fourth having only a short bare bone sticking out. When I expressed some surprise at this, and said that I heard of such things but did not know whether to believe them, and was now glad to have the story confirmed, he said, Oh, the muskrats are the greatest fellows to gnaw their legs off. Why, I caught one once that had just gnawed his third leg off, this being the third time he had been trapped. And he lay dead by the trap, for he couldn't run on one leg. 
such tragedies are enacted even in this sphere and along our peaceful streams and dignify at least the hunter's trade only courage does anywhere prolong life whether of man or beast when they are caught by the leg and cannot get into the water to drown themselves they very frequently gnaw the limb off they are commonly caught under water or close to the edge and dive immediately with the trap and go to gnawing and are quackled and drowned in a moment though under other circumstances they will live several minutes under water they prefer to gnaw off a foreleg to a hind leg and do not gnaw off their tails he said the wharf rats are very common on the river and will swim and cross it like a muskrat and will gnaw their legs and even their tails off in the trap these would be times that tried men's souls if men had souls to be tried ay and the souls of brutes for they must have souls as well as teeth even the water rats lead sleepless nights and live achillean lives there are the strong will and the endeavor man even the hunter naturally has sympathy with every brave effort even in his game to maintain that life it enjoys the hunter regards with awe his game and it becomes at last his medicine of cadoo or caseworms there are the rough coats or cockspurs whose cases are rough and made of various materials and the piper caddis or strawworm made of reed or rush and straight and smooth carlyle's works are not to be studied hardly re-read their first impression is the truest and the deepest there is no reprint if you look again you will be disappointed and find nothing answering to the mood they have excited they are true natural products in this respect all things are but once and never repeated the first faint blushes of the morning gilding the mountain tops with the pale phosphorus and saffron colored clouds they verily transport us to the morning of creation. But what avails it to travel eastward, or look again there an hour hence? We should be as far in the day ourselves, mounting toward our meridian. There is no double entendre for the alert reader. In fact, the work was designed for such complete success that it serves but for a single occasion it is the luxury of wealth and art when for every deed its own instrument is manufactured the knife which sliced the bread of jove ceased to be a knife when that service was rendered for every inferior earthly pleasure we forego a superior celestial one is substituted to purify our lives requires simply to weed out what is foul and noxious and the sound and innocent is supplied 
as nature purifies the blood if we will but reject impurities. Nature and human life are as various to our several experiences as our constitutions are various. Who shall say what prospect life offers to another? Could a greater miracle take place than if we should look through each other's eyes for an instant? We should live in all the ages of the world in an hour, ay, in all the worlds of the ages. What I have read of rhapsodists, of the primitive poets, argonautic expeditions, the life of demigods and heroes, Eleusinian mysteries, etc., suggests nothing so ineffably grand and informing as this would be. The Phoebe came into my house to find a place for its nest, flying through the windows. It was a bright thought, that of man's to have bells, no doubt the birds hear them with pleasure. To compete with the squirrels in the chestnut harvest, picking oft-times the nuts that bear the mark of their teeth. I require of any lecturer that he will read me a more or less simple and sincere account of his own life, of what he has done and thought, not so much what he has read or heard of other men's lives and actions, but some such account as he would send to his kindred from a distant land. And if he has lived sincerely, it must have been in a distant land to me, describing even his outward circumstances and what adventures he has had, as well as his thoughts and feelings about them. He who gives us only the results of other men's lives— though with brilliant temporary success, we may in some measure justly accuse of having defrauded us of our time. We want him to give us that which was most precious to him, not his life's blood, but even that for which his life's blood circulated, what he has got by living. If anything ever yielded him pure pleasure or instruction— let him communicate it. Let the money-getter tell us how much he loves wealth and what means he takes to accumulate it. He must describe those facts which he knows and loves better than anybody else. He must not write on foreign missions. The mechanic will naturally lecture about his trade, the farmer about his farm, and every man about that which he— compared with other men, knows best. Yet incredible mistakes are made. I have heard an owl lecture with perverse show of learning upon the solar microscope, and Chanticleer upon nebulous stars, when both ought to have been sound asleep, the one in a hollow tree, the other on his roost. After I lectured here before, this winter, I heard that some of my townsmen had expected of me some account of my life at the pond. This I will endeavor to give to-night. I know a robust and hardy mother who thinks that her son, who died abroad, 
came to his end by living too low, as she had since learned that he drank only water. Men are not inclined to leave off hanging men today, though they will be tomorrow. I heard of a family in Concord this winter which would have starved if it had not been for potatoes and tea and coffee. It has not been my design to live cheaply, but only to live as I could, not devoting much time to getting a living. I made the most of what means were already got. To determine the character of our life and how adequate it is to its occasion, just try it by any test, as, for instance, that this same sun is seen in Europe and in America at the same time, that these same stars are visible in twenty-four hours to two-thirds the inhabitants of the globe, and who knows how many and various inhabitants of the universe. What farmer in his field lives according even to this somewhat trivial material fact? I just looked up at a fine twinkling star, and thought that a voyager whom I know, now many days sail from this coast, might possibly be looking up at that same star with me. The stars are the apexes of what triangles. There is always a possibility, the possibility, I say, of being all, or remaining a particle in the universe. In these days, and in this country, a few implements, as the axe, shovel, etc., and to the studious, light and stationary, and access to a few books, will rank next to necessaries, but can all be obtained at a very trifling cost. Under the head of clothing is to be ranked bedding or night clothes. We are very anxious to keep the animal heat in us. What pains we take with our beds, robbing the nests of birds in their breasts, this shelter within a shelter, as the mole has a bed of leaves and grass at the end of its burrow. In the summer I caught fish occasionally in the pond, but since September have not missed them. And a man, or his work, over all special excellence or failure, prevails the general authority or value. Almost any man knows how to earn money, but not one in a million knows how to spend it. If he had known so much as this, he would never have earned it. All matter, indeed, is capable of entertaining thought. The complete subjugation of the body to the mind prophesies the sovereignty of the latter over the whole of nature. The instincts are to a certain extent a sort of independent nobility, of equal date with the mind or crown, ancient dukes and princes of the regal blood. They are perhaps the mind of our ancestors subsided in us, the experience of the race. A small sum would really do much good, 
if the donor spent himself with it and did not merely relinquish it to some distant society whose managers do the good or the evil with it how much might be done for this town with a hundred dollars i could provide a select course of lectures for the summer or winter with that sum which would be an incalculable benefit to every inhabitant with a thousand dollars i could purchase for this town a more complete and select library than exists in the state out of cambridge and boston perhaps a more available one than any men sit palsied and helpless by the side of their buried treasures after all those who do most good with money do it with the least because they can do better than to acquire it march thirteenth eighteen forty six the song sparrow and blackbird heard to-day the snow going off the ice in the pond one foot thick men talk much of cooperation nowadays of working together to some worthy end but what little cooperation there is is as if it were not being a simple result of which the means are hidden a harmony inaudible to men if a man has faith he will cooperate with equal faith everywhere if he has not faith he will continue to live like the rest of the world whatever company he is joined to to cooperate thoroughly implies to get your living together i heard it proposed lately that two young men should travel together over the world the one earning his means as he went the other carrying a bill of exchange in his pocket it was easy to see that they could not long be companions or cooperate since one would not operate at all they would part company at the first and most interesting crisis in their adventures end of volume one end of chapter nine read by phyllis vincelli end of the journal of henry david thoreau volume one eighteen thirty seven to eighteen forty six everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.